Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Tonight we're going to look at the genealogy of the Stewart Collection. I'm going to show you that one of the parents uh, is the Museum Sculpture Park. The other parent uh, is its unruly cousin, uh, public art. Uh, these matters of genealogy aren't going to be particularly useful to you as you wander around the campus uh, looking for Stuart Collection pieces. Um, you've got better things to do in any case. Um, you could think about that moment when you first discovered that this perfectly functioning drinking fountain is made out of exquisite granite and steel. And it's a sculpture, not just a drinking fountain, a sculpture by My Michael Asher. And that he put it on axis... Um, with a flagpole and a real monument to the former Camp Matthews that occupied this site and the army riflemen who were trained there, the way Nathan, and it stands there the way Nathan Hale does uh, on the Yale campus, the Nathan Hale of the class of 1773, revolutionary war hero who was hanged by the British. The Asher in this particular place has a sneaky way of reminding you of the history of the site. The Bear uh, by Tim Hawkinson is not exactly sneaky, but it is, it is witty. It sits heavily on the ground in the court uh, of the Jacobs uh, School of Engineering, where young people come to do serious grown-up work. And putting these boulders together took a lot of engineering, as they quickly discover. For some students coming and going, it's a reminder that they were children not very long ago, and that they do well not to lose their childish curiosity and wonder. The bear sits there the way another great heavy campus sculpture does outside uh, an engineering building. Uh, this is Michael Heiser's piece of, 18, of 1984 at Rice University in Houston called 90 degrees, uh, 45 degrees, 90 degrees, 180 degrees. It's also a feat of useless engineering, but if there's wit, it's pretty dry. Robert Irwin's piece is another kind of discovery. Two fences of blue chain link high up off the ground in a eucalyptus grove. You can walk under it and not even notice. But if you notice it once, it sticks to you forever. And that's not because it remains the same like the bear or Nathan Hale, but because it changes as the light and the atmosphere change, and it's never the same twice. It's a lesson in perception. So I said that the Stewart Collection descends from museums, sculpture gardens, and parks. But why not from older university campuses, where there certainly are lots of sculpture around? Well, it's because no campus has ever had this many important pieces, and none has ever used the tricky method of commissioning all its works from the artists themselves, rather than buying them ready-made or accepting donations. Typically, universities have monuments, like Nathan Hale that you just saw, or this one, uh, the imaginary portrait by General Daniel Chester French of the clergyman who, in 1638, left his books and 780 pounds sterling to a new college in Cambridge, Massachusetts, John Harvard, a man who knew a naming opportunity when he saw one. <laughs> Other campuses have sculptures of mythic and inspirational character. I know you all recognize this statue at USC, Tommy Trojan by Roger Noble Burnham of, 18th, of 1930. Unlike John Harvard and Nathan Hale, Tommy is, of course, alive and very much with us, especially at this time of year, and so is his horse, Traveler. On other campuses like Princeton, 
you find big pieces with names that, big names, uh, that have been donated, like this head in concrete designed by Picasso, that are actually not all that important. And others, there are sometimes genuine modern masterpieces, rarely, if ever, however, made for the place they occupy, but sometimes dramatically placed, like this one at the University of Washington in Seattle, one of the famous broken obelisks by Barnett Newman. Klaus Oldenburg's wonderful inflatable piece called Lipstick Ascending on Caterpillar Treads uh, on the left uh, was made uh, during the Vietnam War for a protest group at Yale and installed in 1969 on the plaza in front of that colonnaded war memorial building, making a pretty vivid image of male aggression. Five years ago, he remade it there on the right with more durable materials and permanently erect, but now it's much less conspicuous and in a much less important place in the campus. Let's look for a moment at what's happened to sculpture when you put it outdoors rather than indoors. Now, here's a test case of the great surrealist group by Max Ernst of Capricorn and his family, as you see it in the gallery of the Nelson Gallery in Kansas City. It's on a dignified stone wall, a floor rather, and has a wall behind it, and it has a wash of steady incandescent light, day and night. Here's the piece in plaster in 1948 on the left, before it was cast in bronze, outdoors in Arizona with the artist and his wife, Dorothea Tanning. And uh, here's a cast in a garden in early spring, where I think the sense of rising sap and new life all around it affects the way we see the sculpture. And in the heat of a summer a day, a canopy of leaves puts it in deep shade where it reflects the bright light out where we're standing. Nature adds new associations and makes a subtle change to the relationship we've got with the piece. In some climates, the change of associations is extreme. This is a piece in plaster by George Siegel. We're spared this. Sculpture outdoors is affected uh, by light that changes constantly. Clouds come and go. The color of the light shifts. The sun's angle changes a little bit all day, all year long. This is a large piece in steel by Ellsworth Kelly under a canopy of oak trees. The shadows move across it, and as the clouds come and go, the leaves come and go out of focus. This polished bronze by uh, Jean Arp reflects everything, not just your changing surroundings, but you yourself as you shift around it, making you aware that nothing stands still. Your point of view can change more dramatically out of doors than inside in the galleries. You approach this eight-foot-high piece by Ursula von Reidingsford from below, and you climb up to it. You wander through the 11 acres of Maya Lin's new wave field piece at Storm King Art Center, and then you climb up on this hill to take it all in. A lot of sculpture assumes that you're going to walk around it. You have control of the experience, and you can change the piece, in effect, by moving around, as you do with the famous abduction uh, group by Giambologna in the Loggia dei Lanzi in Florence. Um, this is one of the prime advantages of sculpture that it has over painting. And moving around sculpture is made easy out of doors. The David Smith that you're looking at moves uh, changes as you walk around it on the path, and so does the pattern, the patterns on the steel made by the rotary burnishing tool, which uh, shift as you move. And outdoors, you can 
sometimes get away with touching it. <laughs> Outdoors, even a huge piece like this calder uh, takes on a completely different shape as we move around it. And then there's the wind, which for the first time in the 20th century, sculptors used to introduce another element of change. Uh, Calder's the spinner reacts to the breeze there on the left with erratic, playful motions. And George Rickey's piece slowly waves its arms against the sky. Materials outdoors undergo change. When you walk through one of these steel canyons by Richard Serra, you are face-to-face with surfaces that are intentionally deteriorating a little bit every day, getting pockmarked and oxidized and resembling abstract paintings of the 50s and the 60s. Sculpture gardens and parks take advantage of all these kinds of change. They domesticate it, you could say. They, They make it official. They also create new relationships for sculpture. First of all, with nature, as the landscape designer has shaped it. And the plantings can act as screens, uh, like the hedge behind this piece by Nevelson. Or the plantings can be more assertive, uh, like the, they can be, like this, for example, the humpy uh, shrubs uh, that seem to mimic the shapes of the noguchi that are next door to them. Uh, or they can be witty, um, like the delicate ground cover that this piece by Joel Shapiro sort of seems to strain to step over. They create relationships with the farther surroundings, too. Captured views, to use landscape lingo, like the Justice Department building in Washington, where in the background there, God knows how many tons of official paper are kept um, behind Oldenburg's typewriter eraser, which seems to be racing to the rescue. More recently, artists have incorporated the landscape physically. This is Andy Goldsworthy's wandering wall at the Storm King Center, which starts off straight here next to the road and then takes a dive into the pond. This is a piece by Leo Fitzmaurice just three years ago, a standard highway marker in Britain for historic or scenic attractions, which he planted at the edge of the Yorkshire Sculpture Park, incorporating the park itself into the work. In all these outdoor spaces, lots of activities going on that may have nothing to do with sculpture at all. Reading a book, making conversation, lounging about, picnicking, and other illicit acts that you're not allowed to perform in the galleries. I think this freedom often puts people in a frame of mind that's receptive to works of art. There's a relationship with art that feels companionable, um, even if you're a companion is a bronze nanny goat by Picasso. That's different, I think, from the deferential or reverential attitude that people are apt to assume in galleries. Incidentally, there's a funny thing that I often see uh, outdoors that I don't see indoors. I see people unconsciously assuming poses that mimic the piece, uh, like this guy with a David Smith. Or from a family album... Uh, <laughs> My own kids uh, in the mid-1970s uh, uh, visiting the Storm King Art Center and acting out the Desouvereaux. Life imitates art. I want to sketch the history of modern sculpture parks and gardens, but very quickly. And I've got to ignore their rich earlier history. Greek and Roman uh, life, Renaissance Italy, 19th century American cemeteries and public parks. They were full of monuments like this and focus on the 20th century. Instead, when outdoor sculpture mostly shed the decorative and symbolic and commemorative functions that it had for two two millennia previously and claimed independence. 
One artist opened up this possibility sooner and wider uh, than anybody else, and that was Henry Moore. In 1948, uh, uh, Moore and other artists had a great public coming out uh, in the open-air exhibition of sculpture in Battersea Park. That's Moore standing next to his piece. Uh, The show was an experiment by the new labor government to bring art to the people, to position it as healthy recreation in a familiar public setting where all, all classes could stroll freely, look, nap, talk, be edified. Shows like this were held in parks in Belgium and Holland also during the next few years. Later on, Moore showed his pieces on his farm in Hertfordshire, where the sheep uh, came to um, treat them as part of nature. Well, the common ancestor of museum sculpture gardens is one uh, at the Museum of Modern Art in New York, opened in 1939. If you don't recognize it from the picture, uh, it's because this one was torn up and replaced by the one we know. This one was a hurry-up job, designed by the director and curator and built on the cheap with two-by-fours and bamboo and gravel in curving patterns. It was so popular that it was replaced a dozen years later by the more expensive garden we know by Philip Johnson, built of marble with shallow watercourses and trees in irregular geometric beds. The MoMA sculpture garden has inspired dozens of other Uh, such gardens in the last 50 years. It's still a refuge surrounded by city buildings uh, and very popular for that. And over the wall, it has a captured view of one of the great collages of architecture anywhere. It's been encroached on uh, by additions to the buildings, like this one by Cesar Pelli, that only stood for 16 years uh, before it was demolished and replaced 10 years ago uh, with some alterations. It's still the best of its type, a walled city garden for sculpture. And it's had a lot of offspring, including the Hirschhorn Museum and Sculpture uh, Garden, a donation of the uranium ty- tycoon uh, Joseph Hirschhorn, you see there shaking, being, having his hand rather vigorously shaken by LBJ on the right, uh, which opened on the mall in 1971 uh, after many political struggles uh, and displayed there the owner's very large collection of sculpture. The building and gardens were designed by Gordon Bunshaft of Skidmore, Owings, and Merrill. Gravel terraces on two levels going down 14 feet below the mall with a simple pool and very few plants. So barren and so severe and so blistering hot when it opened that it was redesigned completely 10 years later. It's a sympathetic space that creates many nice relationships between pieces which are mainly the, what you'd call the old masters uh, of 20th century sculpture, uh, or sculptures from what an unkind curator of mine calls the Bronze Age. <laughs> um, a, simple, a very sophisticated collection, if not always an adventurous one. The walls and pavements have deteriorated, however, and a lot of money is going to be needed for repairs and a higher standard of maintenance at the Hirschhorn, which I doubt will be in next year's federal budget. MoMA in New York inspired the Hirschhorn in Washington, as you saw, a city garden. But even earlier, uh, in 1965, it inspired the first campus sculpture garden at UCLA, the Franklin Murphy Sculpture Garden, named after the chancellor who arrived in 1960 with big ambitions. And having paid attention to what was going on in museums in New York and Europe, uh, he decided he wanted something like this. 
uh, in Los Angeles, he inherited this dusty uh, parking lot in the middle of a bunch of newish academic buildings, a very like a, a sort of UCSD situation, which he saw as a potential quadrangle and gathering place. He found a group of collectors who had modern sculpture in their backyards and had money to help buy new pieces. Here he's pitching uh, Lipschitz to uh, some influential ladies. Murphy had to overcome some very skeptical regents. When he was asked what sculptures he planned to put in the garden he was so keen on, he said, I have none, but forget about that. My responsibility is to find the sculptures. Build it and they will come. The landscape uh, design uh, here by the architect Ralph Cornell displaced heavy foot traffic to the sides uh, of the square, leaving the main area for gentle knolls with curving walks. In the curvy shapes of those lawn, you recognize a sort of biomorphic layout, like the Museum of Modern Art's first sculpture garden of 1939, which Cornell must have known very well. Cornell's seating here, uh, he designed to serve as bases for smaller sculptures, as well as semi-private nooks uh, for the visitors. They undulate uh, like the garden itself. Cornell had uh, to create a place where dozens of unknown sculptures would each look right. Soon, though, the pieces came, one by one. Familiar bronzes like this one of the 1930s through the 1950s, uh, this one by Henry Moore, uh, the one fine uh, stable by Alexander Calder, and the great uh, cue by the 20 by David Smith. In the early 1970s, another sculpture garden was built on a campus, not of a university, but of PepsiCo in the Westchester suburb of Purchase. The client was an old-style imperial CEO, Donald Kendall, who got Edward Darrell Stone to design a building and a campus for him. The world headquarters, despite its low-slung prairie character, has high security and flagpoles and would do quite well for the strongman president of, a, let's say, Belarus or uh, Tunisia or someplace. But um, visitors are very welcome there. Kendall himself picked out the sculpture, going mainly for the familiar, Rodin, Mayol, Moore, Hepworth, Lipschitz, and putting them in a central courtyard. This has slightly sunken terraces under shady trees and many small bronzes like the ones in the MoMA garden, including some lovely encounters, uh, like uh, this one, the Mayol in the foreground and Henry Moore in the distance. Out on the broad lawns, Moore is against the star. Here's uh, the piece um, that you saw a version of a few moments ago in the most, uh, one of the most famous images uh, in the history of sculpture, uh, placed seductively, when you saw it first, on the left on Moore's own meadow, where I'm sure Donald Kendall also saw it. The park uh, has been reshaped and replanted uh, since 1981, when Kendall got the British architect Russell Page uh, to uh, do that. There are carefully planned encounters of plant and sculpture, like the one you just saw, the tangle of cypresses with its uh, humped, with the bushes with humped shapes and uh, torqued voids um, rhyming with it, or the group by Barbara Hepworth that she called the Family of Man, which seems to emerge a bit creepily from the copse of purple weeping beaches in the background. You don't look for any Stuart artists, uh, Stuart collection artists here. Kendall's successors evidently believed that when the boss uh, had arrived at pop art, enough was enough. While the Stewart Collection was shaping up in the 1980s, some more traditional projects were underway in Texas, 
Uh, in Houston, at the Museum of Fine Arts, uh, the sculptor Isamo Noguchi designed a garden across the street, a walled area with raised beds uh, for grass and trees and sculpture. It opened in 1986. It's not timid. The angles and the curves uh, in poured concrete echo the primary geometries that Noguchi himself had used in his sculpture garden of 1965 for the Israel Museum in Jerusalem. A lot of hard surfaces uh, here, as in the Museum of Modern Art, and a small, slow-growing collection without a lot of surprises. It's already pretty full, and there's no room to expand. Downtown Dallas has two sculpture gardens, the first designed by Edward Barnes as part of his Dallas Museum of Art, finished in 1983. You look from the inside the building to that piece you saw before by Ellsworth Kelly, resting lightly like a fallen leaf, and in another area, bronzes by Moore and Hepworth, and on the pavement, a stone circle by Richard Long. And next door is the five-year-old Nasher Sculpture Center, endowed by the sculptor collector uh, Raymond Nasher, uh, a pavilion by Renzo Piano, and a park designed by Peter Walker. The daylight galleries are really beautiful for sculpture. Outside, there's a fairly unadventurous collection of Moore Hepworth, Lipschitz, and so on down the list, forward um, through, however, the generation of Richard Serra and Mark de Suvero. There are too many pieces uh, in this installation, typical of private collectors' installations, and there are some heavy clashes of scale. But there are also delightful surprise juxtapositions, um, like Rodin's Eve, silhouetted by the light on Serra's massive piece a century later. Alongside these city sculpture gardens, there have been a parallel development, landscaped sculpture parks with more space and variety. They're the real ancestors of the Stuart collection. They begin in Europe after the war. Those temporary sculpture exhibitions in 1948 and 1950 that I mentioned in public parks in England and Belgium and Holland helped to inspire the Kruller Müller Museum in the Netherlands to create what became the best-known sculpture garden in Europe. 50 miles to the east of The Hague, in rolling sandy country with forests and deer. The museum opened in 1938 in a temporary building, you see it on the right, that became permanent and got expanded. And in the 1950s, it annexed part of the surrounding landscape for sculpture. Uh, here, everything to the right of the buildings. A broad lawn, um, mainly, with modern bronzes. Um, there were added also seven, several open pavilions by Dutch architects, to give scale and shelter to the installation. And large works were commissioned or bought to engage the idea of garden more or less explicitly. You can't get more explicit than Oldenburg's trowel. Since the garden expanded into a much larger park in the 1980s, there have been many commissions for specific sites. This is a piece of 1982, the five-column bases for Kroeller-Muller by the Scottish artist Ian Hamilton Findlay, a familiar name to you who know the Stewart collection. He did a piece five years later uh, for the campus uh, here. This piece invites the viewer to move around until the trees align with the, his bases and become the shafts of columns without actually touching them. The bases, in other words, are well in front of, of the trees. and You move around and make the thing work. The idea of a sculpture park uh, was born here at Kruller Miller, not just a garden next to the museum, but beyond that, a more or less natural-looking landscape with open fields and woods and a commitment to contemporary artists and a commission, a program of commissions. 
In the 60s and 70s, another sculpture garden became influential at the private museum in Denmark called Louisiana, north of Copenhagen, which looks out to the Sound and across to Sweden. A 19th century villa was expanded to embrace the garden. The additions are low, made of uninstitutional brick and wood and glass, and the sculpture gardens slip in among the buildings and old trees. The plantings include a lot of shrubs and ferns that occur naturally or might have, and there are views uh, to capture here, too. Moore's uh, reclining figure, another of those pieces that we've seen, seen against the open air, sort of expands in its brokenness to embrace the sea beyond. And to admire how the Danish uh, families use their leisure time, you have to go to Louisiana on the weekend. It's a kind of festival uh, with the sculpture in the middle. The example of Kruller-Muller and Louisiana lie behind the Storm King Art Center, uh, an hour north of New York City, which was launched in the 1960s by a businessman who put his collection of pieces by the great American sculptor David Smith outdoors, as Smith himself had done in his studio further upstate, letting the light and weather play over them. At Storm King, you see a major sculptor shown in a really stirring way on a rolling lawn with hills behind. In this landscape of 500 acres, pieces like this huge Calder look at home. More and more artists have been invited to make commissioned work here, uh, such as Isamu Noguchi, who made this piece, uh, Momotaro, in the late 70s for a hilltop that was created for it with bulldozers. Storm King is also a vast gallery for sculptors of the 70s and 80s who worked on a heroic scale, particularly um, De Suvero, the sort of signature artist for Storm King, who wrestles steel into shape in an agricultural landscape that itself has been shaped with great labor. In 1991, Richard Serra took on a 10-acre site and made one of his most powerful sculptures, four long steel rectangles, 40 feet long, each sunk into a, the bank of earth uh, for various to depths, each one of them protruding just far enough to assert itself. And here again is the stone wall by Andy Goldsworthy, which wanders willfully among the trees, um, and also the recent project by Maya Lin, a reshaping of 11 acres where dry land becomes the sea, Waves sculpted in the earth echo the hills beyond, and where you can wander and lose your bearings. This is the Yorkshire Sculpture Park, opened in 1977 on the grounds of an 18th century house. The piece in the foreground is by Anthony Caro. Like Storm King, it has a spectacular setting. It has a mix of carefully landscaped gardens and a park, active farmland and woods. The classic progression uh, from built landscape to cultivated to wild. And it, too, has a slow-growing collection of modern and contemporary works. It does temporary exhibitions and has close relations with sculptors, resulting in loans and occasional commissions. It's not occupied, or not operated by a museum, like most sculpture parks, but it is a museum, and large numbers of people from the surrounding cities visit it often and routinely. You see that special British sense of entitlement to the land. Uh, hundreds of people hike through the park and ride through it. This may be the only piece by Saul LeWitt in the world that you can see on horseback. 
It's hard for sculpture parks to track contemporary trends in sculpture, but the shows here in Yorkshire have done pretty well. Just an example, this is an installation by Sean Picard called Unnatural of 1995. It has both a switch of context, uh, neon in the woods, and nice wordplay on the meanings of unnatural, including a warning that this landscape only looks natural because it was shaped by designers and gardeners to look that way. And of course it was influenced by Bruce Nauman of the Stewart Collection fame. In the same years that the Stewart Collection really got going, in the mid and later 80s, uh, the collector Giuliano Gori was creating a private sculpture park on his farm in, outside Pistoia in Tuscany. Uh, with the farm, he bought a 50-acre landscape park of the 19th century and was commissioning artists to make work for specific sites. It was a mix of European and American artists, not the same ones uh, as the Stewart Collection has, but comparable. He wanted results fast, so he started off by inviting 10 artists to be there working simultaneously, not a formula for happy relationships. Uh, after that, he proceeded at a more Mary Beebe-like pace and has done a great deal in 25 years, about 60 commissions in all. This is a marble maze by the American Robert Morris, a great weight resting in its little clearing. It's uh, stripes um, evoking the Tuscan churches of the Middle Ages, and its contortions and dilemmas of choice uh, for the visitor, plainly alluding to our own lives. Just what relation it bears to its particular setting, however, isn't easy to see. And I'd say the same for this project in another clearing, a huge five-part piece by Alice Acock of 1982 with an elaborate scientific and cosmological program. Walking along the road, you almost fail to notice one of the great things here. You can just see it, a concrete wall uh, of 1982 by Mauro Staccioli uh, slanting in a direction opposite to the trees, uh, once a, a raw, minimalist statement, purposely foreign to the place, but now absorbed into the place through what you have to call a kind of benign neglect. The neglect uh, isn't benign in the case of Saul Lewitt's Cube Without a Cube in eight, 1989, which the artist had painted white and which depends on uniform surfaces in, and clarity. It's now a mess. Maintenance is the lesson here, as it is in a lot of sculpture gardens. You could call it sustainability. If you can't keep it up, don't build it. The successful pieces uh, here at Gorey's Park have the land as their point of reference. It's materials, it's history, it's uses, myths, rituals, and they don't merely use it as a backdrop. Uh, one is a piece of the 1980s uh, called Circles of Time by the American Alan Sonfist, an early influential environmental artist, who moved 200-year-old olive trees to form an inner circle of three acres and a series of rings outside them, native trees, then thyme and laurels brought over by the Greeks, and then local stone, the galestro that you see on the left, surrounding the plants, and then younger olives, and beyond them, wheat growing in the fields. Growth and change are built into the piece, which is maintained by farm laborers. One of the most familiar artists to people who visit sculpture parks and gardens is Magdalena Abkanovitz. Often what you see is a variant of this piece, a lineup of half figures like mummies that have been sawn in half. What gives this one its charge is the setting, uh, at the edge of a prosperous olive grove where trees grow on a grid like the ones the figures occupy. 
and its title, Catharsis. Their presence here evokes some kind of terrible event which they stand witness to and for which the work of art may play some kind of constructive, maybe even healing, healing role. I think Gorey's creation here will become a public sculpture park one day, <clears throat> bigger than the Stewart collection, but with, I think, a far lower success rate. It needs reinvigoration, but for all its flaws, it's going to remain very well worth visiting. The sculpture garden at the Walker Art Center in Minneapolis was designed in the mid-1980s by Edward Larrabee Barnes and Peter Rothschild. It combines big city garden with a park landscape beyond. In the foreground, you can see four symmetrical open-air rooms with hedges for walls. Its long, uh, shady access uh, leads by walks, walkways to a wider landscape beyond that's more loosely laid out, and beyond that now, a four-acre park. Openings in the hedges are like doors and galleries, giving views of what's inside and what lies beyond. A Dan Graham mirror piece here is woven into the green hedge, reflecting it and you. It's the layout of a Renaissance garden with some flavor of the Tuileries. Uh, On axis, uh, in the place of honor where the prince would have put a fountain and a statue of Neptune in triumph, is a work commissioned in 1985 from Klaus Oldenburg, Spoon Bridge with a Cherry, a kind of anti-monument. Recent commissions uh, in Minneapolis, however, have been few. The most recent American sculpture park of all, the Olympic Sculpture Park in Seattle, designed by Weiss and Manfredi, opened four years ago. It was built by the Seattle Art Museum uh, on the last remaining piece of the city's waterfront uh, in the developer's paradise of Belltown. You can see the left and right before and after. It was a sort of oil dump on the left uh, with tracks separating it from uh, the uh, water and at the right, uh, the new sculpture park connecting it to the water. Here's Calder again, uh, looking uh, this time from a, at a view across the bay and the mountains, reinforcing the associations of sails and human aspirations. There's an exhibition pavilion at the top, that's on the left, and landscape plain slopes down past a very beautifully sighted Richard Serra, uh, that's the orange uh, shapes on the lower left with a zigzag walkway and broad openings that disclose in the center and far right, disclose the fact that it bridges a road and railroad lines and doesn't disguise them at all. None of this is nature, this park. It's all built. Finally, you go down to Elliott Bay, where a waterfront walk picks up foot traffic from the surrounding streets and leads to a nice surprise, this crescent-shaped beach that was created artificially. This is a piece of expert city planning a rescue job, uh, and a sculpture park with a few commissioned works, but with a collection in the making. Sculpture gardens and parks, for all their success with the public, uh, have their limits. Uh, For one thing, they're a supply-side phenomenon. Almost everything in them has been donated by collectors who'd previously had them on their lawns at home. They were not bought by curators. By contrast, the practice of the Stewart collection of having new works created involves more risk, often more gain, and a far greater contribution to artists and art. What's shown in sculpture parks is relatively conservative, as you've been hearing me say. It doesn't stray away from established artists very often, and you seldom see chances taken with younger people. In fact, you often see the same pieces, ones that have high recognition value and prestige for the collectors who own them. 
This comes naturally to bronze sculpture, after all, which is made in multiple casts, like Rodin's Walking Man, here in three different uh, sculpture parks. A problem for a sculpture park or a garden is that as pieces are added, uh, it's apt to get crowded, like an overpopulated, overpopulated zoo with too little habitat and excessive competition. Artists fear that their works can be interfered with by the landscape and with each other uh, and can be trivialized, subordinated to the plantings. This is Elizabeth Frink's uh, piece uh, in Yorkshire versus the rhododendron, uh, ending up serving as kind of garden ornaments. The Stewart collection was shaped in part by the tradition of public sculpture, so I, I can't ignore it. I'm just going to take a few minutes to delve with it. Its uh, origins, deep in history, are monuments commemorating regimes, factions, events, and heroes. This is the monument of 1897 at the edge of the Boston Common to Colonel Shaw's regiment of black soldiers uh, in the Civil War. The men are brought back to life uh, in a familiar guise. The leader is mounted. The soldiers mount, march forward, united. We understand the rhetoric perfectly. The theme is memory, in this case, the need to remember bravery and sacrifice. In the year 1415, the Czech Protestant leader Jan Hus was burned at the stake. Uh, 500 years later, this huge monument in Old Town Square in Prague was dedicated to Hus and his followers, who defied the Vatican. In 1915, when this was put up, the point was that Hus symbolized defiance of all foreign oppressors, the Habsburgs and the Russians alike. And you may remember that during the Soviet era, people would gather silently on these steps uh, in protest. The functions of public sculpture are political in one sense or another. And ever since classical antiquity, size has often mattered more than artistic refinement. Some sculpture just resists connoisseurship. You could say it's too big to fail. <laughs> Chicago has a history of using public sculpture to conspicuous effect. The World's Columbian Exhibition of 1893 had not only a vast white city and a lake surrounded by vast, shining neoclassical pavilions in plaster, it also had a gilded statue of the Republic by Daniel Chester French, towering 100 feet above the water on the right. She embodies the idea of an America, an idealized Athena-like creature, holding symbols of world dominance, the orb in her right hand with an American eagle, and of freedom, the staff with liberty uh, crowned with a laurel. What survives is on the left, the replica in Jackson Park, only one-third the size of the original, but still pretty big. In 1967, Mayor Daley I dedicated a 50-foot statue that celebrated another kind of liberty for Chicago. City, uh, the um, city was now sophisticated enough, liberated enough, uh, to put a Picasso in the center of government buildings downtown. It's a woman's head, but nobody or no thing in particular. It represents, you could say, the new cultured Chicago and its international aspirations. One alderman campaigned to have it replaced by a statue of Ernie Banks, <laughs> second base for anybody under 50. Now everybody simply knows it as the Picasso, an icon of the city. And as an icon, it might have lost its place already to this one, to the cloud gate by the Indian sculptor Anish Kapoor in Millennium Park, 2005, which is stainless steel, as wide as the Republic was high, and reflects you and everybody else and the downtown and the lake, all depending on where you stand. 
I should say public that's, sculpture that's abstract like this, and non-representational, has a relatively short history. Uh, the oldest survivor, I think, dates from 1938. This monument by the Romanian Constantine Brancusi, the Endless Column, uh, it's in Targaju near the Carpathian Mountains. You see them on the left behind. The Carpathian Mountains, a, a memorial to Romanian dead uh, in World War I, um, it's a stack, a hundred feet high, of hollow rhomboids in cast iron. It suggests the ancient idea of the axis of the world, and it may be also be that these identical forms stacked up suggest the acts of those war dead, acts of discipline, sacrifice, that if you stack them up could reach heaven. A lot of public sculpture is made to be there permanently, and sometimes that's part of the Understanding or the contract with the artist, that can be a problem, uh, especially if a site has to change or the owners simply don't want it there any longer. Uh, you remember this case. This is Richard Serra's Tilted Ark, commissioned for a plaza outside a federal office building in New York, 120 feet long, 12 feet high, which a lot of the workers in the building thought was arrogant vandalism perpetrated with tax dollars on their lunch spot. <laughs> After years of dispute with, during which Serra uh, said, and I quote him, to remove the piece is to destroy it. The GSA removed it in 1989 and sold it for scrap. These are the nightmares of brave people like Mary Beebe. Here's one going up now that will be really hard to remove. Um, this is the German artist Markus Lüpertz, who's made a 60-foot-high statue of Hercules to go on top of a cultural center in a park uh, in Gelsenkirchen in the Ruhr Valley, on the site of a disused Nordstern mine that was once famous for its output of coal and its contribution to the German steelmaking during two wars. The figure is deformed, uh, crudely modeled, and an obvious reference to the maddest public sculpture in Germany, the 30-foot-high bronze Hercules on top of this super garden folly of the early 18th century, built for the pleasure and glory of the Hessian ruler in Kassel, Germany. And here's the Roman model for it. Uh, whatever Lupertz's brute will have to say to a contemporary German audience standing in the site that it's standing in, we'll hear about it, I'm sure. We think we can count on that. Uh, we should be hearing in the fall, I think, uh, next year. Um, nowadays, many more works of public sculpture are made for temporary display, uh, sometimes in parks, giving them the aspect of sculpture parks for a while. Um, Madison Square Park in New York has had an astute nonprofit group that puts on wonderful shows there for months at a time, sometimes just one piece at a time, like this pair of trees in stainless steel by the sculptor uh, Roxy Payne. The trees bend towards each other and join branches by some strange affinity and almost magic relation. It's since been sold and relocated to the grounds of the new Modern Art Museum in Fort Worth. So it, these parks can serve as a bit of a gallery function, too. Public art in relation to parks and gardens can be even more ingenious than this. Please let me show you a couple of recent examples. A park can be captured by an artist taken over, turned at least temporarily into a sculptural environment. That doesn't happen very often. You'll remember this time, uh, the two-week event just uh, six years ago, uh, the project by Christo and Jean-Claude creating a 23-mile itinerary through Central Park marked by gates hung with cloth for millions of people to come together and see the city and the park and each other in a surprising way. One 
French artist Patrick Blanc has found a way to bring gardens to public places, like downtown Avignon here, by planting them on the sides of buildings. Not so easy. Uh, so they function somewhere between painting and sculpture, giving you a mix of pleasure and unease at a garden uh, on a 90-degree uh, tilt. Two American artists have shown that it's possible in different ways for sculpture actually to be a garden. This is Jeff Koons's puppy of 1992, uh, uh, underneath it a steel armature, and over it uh, living flowering plants. I mean, how about that? A, a, a cute West Highland Terrier and a flower garden, too? It's like Koons is, say, Koons is saying, go ahead, I dare you to dislike this. Seriously, more permanently, uh, Robert Irwin's Central Garden at the Getty uh, is an immense, immersive, walk-through sensory environment that takes time and attention. Here you see it just planted. You move through changes in the light, the sound, warmth and cool, and amazing groupings of plants. And gradually you find yourself expanding in your own ability to respond. And it's changing all the time, too, growing shifting, being planted and replanted. It's an idea that Robert Irwin, that was really born here in the eucalyptus grove on the campus of UCSD almost 30 years ago, uh, this idea that nothing stays the same, that, that the work of art, even an outdoor work of art, needs uh, to be uh, a matter of sensitizing the viewer uh, to watch his, her own responses uh, to changing experience. The circumstances were right 30 years ago for the Stewart Collection, um, when supply and demand could come together uh, on that campus. Uh, when I say demand, I mean there was a campus barely 20 years old, growing, badly needing visual excitement, focus, and scale. It was big on science and engineering, and it needed humanizing ideas. As to supply, there was an open-minded donor, uh, supported by a willing chancellor, and more important, there was a curator who had arrived as a veteran of public art since the 1960s. She knew the artists who'd already made important public projects, and she had an instinct for others who might be able to do that. Artists got the unusual chance to roam the campus and pick a site. And that's been one of the charms of the Stewart Collection for artists, and also, of course, a source of complication and negotiation. Artists liked the invitation because they got paid whether their proposal was accepted or not. They signed not only because they knew Mary Beebe, but also because right off the bat she had recruited two of the leading American artists, Robert Irwin and Bruce Nauman. She picked artists, some of them anyway, who'd never made sculpture at all. Um, this is uh, Elizabeth Murray on the right and William Wegman uh, on the left with the curator. She got along with her artists, too. <laughs> Major artists are often stacked up for years with projects. Mary's advantages include being patient and being trusted. A typical project will gestate for as long as it takes to get it right, sometimes longer. She has guts, and she sees controversy as a healthy thing, as teachable, part of what the university stands for. And she gets things done. Nauman's neon piece needed, should we say, more than the usual negotiating with the administration and the community of La Jolla, which is not exactly Venice or Chelsea. And afterward, he said, 
This is Nauman talking. Anyone else but Mary would have given up. She just kept going. Once she wants to do something, it's hard to stop her. Mary Beebe asks in her excellent book about the Stewart Collection called Landmarks, could anything be more risky than public art? A field littered with Sturm und Drang, stormy protest, compromise, and failure. Well, the Stewart Collection gets its logic from its particular setting uh, in a university community uh, and its primary audience, people whose lives are being shaped every day by a process of observing, discovering, rethinking, and debating. This helps to account for a lot of the devices that the artists use and the messages they deliver. Uh, For one thing, it's a key to the kind of hide-and-seek game uh, of many of these pieces. For for example, you have to look for the panorama by William Wegman, uh, and you discover it at the very edge of the campus, behind the theater. Actually, the theater people discover it, but most other people don't until somebody tells them where to go. It's at the boundary between the academic enclave and the real world. As though you were in Yosemite National Park, you use the tourist telescope to peer from your protected spot out at the unplanned changing sprawl all around, mountains, condos, Mormon temple. And your guide uh, is a droll kind of artist display board, a display board giving fanciful made-up names by the artist to the mountains and goofy titles to the boring buildings that you're looking at, like Dog City, Now Leashing, The Asher water fountain is hidden in plain sight. The double take, the first double take, is when you identify it as such, and the second one comes when you ask it why it's there. But we talked about that before. Irwin made his piece almost disappear in the grove and reappear depending on conditions of light and weather that are forever beyond the artist's control. Most people don't spot two of uh, Terry Allen's trees at all. They hear poetry being recited uh, in the grove, and they trace it to the leafless tree with the patchy gray bark covered with lead. Or they hear singing and find the music coming from another lead tree. There are hours and hours of music and stories and poems. The grove of academe was originally a term given to the olive trees that were part of Plato's academy outside Athens. But the artists had turned the the UCSD grove into something more like the enchanted forests of European myth and folklore, where strange creatures live, and and, and trees actually can speak. That's the spirit of Elizabeth Murray's giant uh, shoe and other brightly colored, colored props that you come on in the woods, as though they'd been lost by some very large maiden who'd have fled the campus, might still be around somewhere. She might take the bear to bed with her, for all you know. It's another flight of fancy and dip into a fairy tale world. Hide-and-seek is one strategy. You can't miss it is another. Uh, this was the idea of the first Stuart piece of 1983, The Sun God by Nicky de saint which gave the university an icon, a mascot, a focal point, and a place to assemble. It is still amazing in its joyous combination of painting and sculpture and fantasy to adapt a kind of Native American imagery for a place that has few other reminders of indigenous life and culture. This piece by Kiki Smith takes you by surprise. 
in a spot off the beaten track near the medical school, a surprise because it looks like an old-fashioned monument, a statue on a column, and more surprised because everything about it is not what you expect of a monument. The column is of cast concrete tree. The bronze uh, nude uh, is disturbingly unidealized. She has a middle-aged body, and from slits in her arms, water drips down and gets, falls to the stones below and gets pumped up again. Pinned to her chest uh, are a constellation of little stars. There's no story. There's no individual heroine, even. There's an ordinary woman identified poetically with the great forces of our lives, the universe itself, the elements, and death, uh, and the continuation of life. You can't really miss Alexis Smith's snake path. Uh, it has the biggest footprint of any of the pieces, but it plays a funny game with the otherworldly Geisel Library. The path disappears from many angles of view uh, and takes you past to Paradise Lost uh, to Eden, the book on the left, uh, to Eden on the right, uh, to Rest and Think, and it takes you up uh, to the library. And only then do you get the full view, which reveals the serpent head to tail, coiling around the garden, triggering the reminder that he brought the dubious gifts of knowledge, shame, and death to the Garden of Eden. Students, seekers of knowledge, beware. And when the lights go down, there's more to think about. Circling the tops of the structures labs uh, are seven medieval vices and virtues, appealing together in every random combination, like the I Ching, some obvious like temperance and gluttony, and others surprisingly related like fortitude and anger. Forever bumping the others, yielding, toggling, forcing the whole community of people who see this piece to consider the crudity of words and their failure to convey the real complexity of our moral choices. Here's uh, the curator at the opening, uh, pitching the next Stewart Collection project, I think to the chancellor, and look what's over her head. Lust and hope, the twin virtues of museum directors everywhere. Another strategy of the Stewart Collection is familiarity, making pieces kind of furniture for the campus where you can see them every day and use them. You can have companionable relationship with these pieces that lets their messages penetrate slowly and stick with you. With the Namjoon Paik, uh, the messages of these Buddhas watching dead TVs are wordless and enigmatic about time and obsolescence and mental attention. With Jenny Holzer and Barbara Kruger, it's about the nature of the messages themselves, especially words from the wise, or supposedly wise. The Holzer's case, the witty sayings she's made up are literally carved in stone. In Barbara Kruger's multimedia extravaganza in the Price Center, students lounge or work under mammoth clocks that measure their hours and minutes, and a litany of phrases that reminds them of the routine ways we get tyrannized by time and routine. On the, on the floor are quotes from many different writers, like Hannah Arendt, who wrote, Under conditions of tyranny, it is far easier to act than to think. Soon you'll have a new work on the campus. Uh, it'll be in the you-can't-miss-it category. Uh, here's the J Jacobs uh, Engineering School, home of the bear. Embedded in the edge of that roof will be a plain frame house 
that looks as though it had flown down there or flown in on a tornado from Kansas and stuck to the building. It's by the prominent Korean artist Do Ho Se. You're going to step outside of the building uh, onto a walled garden and a path leading to the little house. The garden and house will bring the comfort of home to the people working there, or at least an imaginary home. These works on the campus get embedded in the lives of the people who work and study here. They have important things to teach beyond the value of staying open to your own visual experiences. They encourage everybody to feel free to think imaginatively, to experiment with ideas. They reinforce suspicion of received wisdom. They make you look at your own habits, re-examine your categories, the set of boxes that we use to classify our experience. These works of art perform the great task, the great university task of liberating students' minds. How wonderful that you have these things among you and that you'll have even more. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.